Father, by your Holy Spirit, would you speak to us, help us to understand these words, help us to see what they mean for us in our lives today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, earlier this week, a young man approached an elderly and senior member of his family regarding a a matter of huge value and sensitivity and importance. He wasn't after a bit of early inheritance or a loan or the use of the family holiday home, but something intangible and infinitely more valuable. He wanted a blessing. The Duke of Sussex, Prince Harry, was seeking a blessing from his grandmother, Her Majesty the Queen, A blessing regarding his decision with Meghan, Duchess of Sussex, to step back from full-time royal duties, to move to Canada and get normal jobs, becoming the first people ever, as someone put it, to quit their family to spend more time with their work. (laughs) But the key question was, could Harry secure the Queen's blessing? And the answer was yes. And in in an unprecedented personal statement, the Queen assured the nation that she fully supports Harry and Meghan and she wishes them well. And now still uh, Duke and Duchess, but no longer royal highnesses who have to take their turn representing the Queen, it seems they have secured what they were looking for. What a blessing. Now, although none of us are royal princes or princesses, as far as I know, all of us can probably, on some level, empathise with what it feels like when you're longing for someone to bless you. Or perhaps we might put it that we long for them to approve us, to accept us, to tell us everything's okay. In general, in our lives, it's not general love from general people that we long for, but specific love and acceptance and approval from specific people, from a parent, from a loved one, from a boss, from a teacher, from a friend. We we, we find ourselves saying, what must I do to be blessed? One word or action signifying approval can transform everything. It might be the words, I love you, or well done, you did a great job. It might just be a hug. It might be a gift, a physical gift, a gift of time, an act of service that demonstrates love and approval in action. You know, she was willing to spend all that time helping me with that problem that I had. I feel loved and blessed. And that is the subject of this reading that we've just heard from Genesis chapter 27. If you've joined us for the first time this morning, the book of Genesis is about God's plan to save the world through one family through the descendants of Abraham. And the idea of blessing is closely associated with this. The the initial promise to Abraham back in chapter 12 says, whoever blesses you, I will bless. And it also says, through you all nations will be blessed. And last time we saw God saying to Isaac, I am with you and with that I will bless you. Now, the word to bless is quite a sort of vague word, isn't it? We use it in all kinds of different ways these days. But in Genesis, it, meant, it means something like this. I will cause things to go well for you. In the case of God's blessing, it's saying, God will cause things to go well. 
Now, in, the, in this chapter, the word for bless or blessing occurs something like 27 times, if you count them all up. There, there are four characters here, and each of them interacts with the theme of blessing in a slightly different way. So first, as you can see on the back of the notices, Isaac plots. Isaac plots. This is effectively a deathbed scene. Isaac is getting ready to bless. Here is Esau. He's a tearaway. His Hittite wives are a source of grief at the end of the previous chapter. And when you contrast this with the end of Abraham's life, there is that slight sense of laziness about Isaac. This isn't all entirely Esau's fault, because as his father, it was down to Isaac to help Esau to make a wise marriage decision, or even in that culture to arrange it for him, as Abraham did for Isaac. But like Adam in the Garden of Eden, and we will see echoes of Adam and Eve through this chapter, Isaac finds it easier not to take responsibility, but to abdicate, to sit back, to let events take their course. And now despite all that, and never mind the poor decision-making, Isaac is determined to bestow his blessing on his favourite son, Esau. Now we've seen in the last couple of weeks, this is a dysfunctional family with favourites and bad parenting decisions all along the way. But even more than that, this goes directly against what God had said to Rebecca about their sons back in chapter 25. The older will serve the younger. And so Isaac is seeking in some way to subvert this prophecy. You can tell there's something up because he thinks Rebecca is out of earshot. And then we get a sense here of what else is driving Isaac as he does this. Can you see in verses 3 and 4? It's food. Isaac preferred Esau because of his taste for wild game. And we begin to see how Isaac allows his appetite, his senses, to drive his decisions. Now we're going to see all five senses here in this chapter. Isaac is a man who is easily driven by those senses. They cause him to focus purely on the here and now, which is what what our senses do. It's all about here and what's around me, right here, right now. He is thinking only of his rumbling belly. And he wants to bless the son who can help him with it. So that's Isaac. Then comes Rebecca. Rebecca counterplots. I think that's a word, counterplot. She has a scheme of her own. Now, if you, if you like camping, you will know this. You can hear anything through the wall of a tent. And if Isaac is like Adam, then Rebecca behaves like Eve. She takes the initiative. She takes matters into her, her own hands. And she determines to see her own favourite son blessed, whatever it takes. Do what I tell you, she says. Go and get two young goats, then I can prepare some tasty food. There it is again. And you can take it to your father and get blessed. Now, Jacob's only concern is not whether this is morally acceptable, but whether the plan will actually work. My brother Esau is a hairy man, and I'm a smooth-skinned man. He's going to see through it, and I'm going to end up cursed, he says. No, let the curse fall on me, says Rebecca. She's determined. So he goes and he does it and the food gets made and Jacob puts Esau's clothes on and he doesn't quite seek to pull the wool over Isaac's eyes but he covers his smooth skin with goat skin and hair. Esau was clearly remarkably hairy, wasn't he? 
Now, is there anything wrong with what Rebecca does? After all, isn't this what God has said is supposed to happen? Hasn't Esau already sold Jacob his birthright anyway? The narrator stays quiet, which is normal in these stories, so you have to look and see what happens. Does it end well for Rebecca and Jacob as they plot in this way? Well, in one sense, yes, he gets his blessing, but there are very real negative consequences in his life, and we'll begin to see those at the end of the chapter. The point is, this is, an, in effect, an attempt from Rebecca to manipulate God into keeping his promise according to her timetable. Abraham and Sarah did the same thing when they hatched a plot for Abraham to sleep with Hagar, the maid, to bring about a son, who then is Ishmael. See, it's not trusting God to keep his promises. It's like Eve in the Garden of Eden. And so then we come to Jacob himself. Thirdly, Jacob deceives It's a tricky start, isn't it? Verse 18, Jacob tries to keep conversation to a minimum, uh, my father, but straight away, who are you? So Jacob comes back with lies, all lies. He lies about himself. I am Esau. I have done as you told me. And then he lies about God. Verse 20, the Lord your God, which is kind of distancing himself from God, isn't it? Not not my God at this point. The Lord your God And it's a telling sign of what's actually going on, isn't it? The Lord your God has granted me success. But this isn't enough for Isaac, who wants to engage all his senses. Do you see this? So he wants to eat the tasty food. Then let me touch you. Let me eat your game that I love. Come near and kiss me so I can smell you. And yet, despite his hearing, telling him something is not right with the voice that he hears... In the end, he proves himself completely blind to what's actually going on. Blind because he's failing to trust God's promises. And so, Jacob gets his blessing. Now, the blessing is all about promised land. Verse 27, a blessed field. That's what God has promised in the land. The dew of heaven is the way land in the Middle East generally gets its water, not usually by lots of rain falling all over the place, but by morning dew condensing on the earth and nourishing it. And that is the way that the land is going to bring forth its grain and its wine and so on. And then with great irony, given that he thinks he's blessing Esau, he says, be Lord over your brothers and may they bow down to you. So, Jacob deceives, Jacob gets his blessing, and then fourthly, Esau weeps. Jacob makes a swift exit just before tragic. Esau enters with more tasty food. Here we go, Dad, I'm all ready for your blessing, let's go. Well, who are you? I'm your firstborn, Esau. And for the first time in the chapter, Isaac sees clearly and truly He trembles violently. I have already eaten tasty food. And what's more, I've already given away my blessing. Now, we might think this is all a bit ridiculous. You know, the blessing was obtained fraudulently, wasn't it? You know, surely that makes it null and void. You've got the lawyers onto it today. I'm sure you could, you know, sort it all out. But in fact, the point is that finally Isaac is coming to terms with the fact that try as he might, 
He can't circumvent God's plan. The reason Jacob will be blessed is not because, you know, Isaac thinks his words are magic or something like that. It's that Jacob is God's choice to continue the line of promise. It was always meant to be this way. And despite Isaac's best efforts, it is this way. And remember, this isn't any old family. It's the family God is using to save the world. And so God gets to say which is the family line that allows his promise to continue. Because it's always his initiative. It's always his decision. It's always his work to do the saving, not ours. Now, we heard from Hebrews chapter 12. Just before that, in Hebrews chapter 11, it has that big, long list of heroes from the Old Testament. And it can leave us scratching our heads sometimes as it lists all these great heroes of the faith, you know, great examples of trusting God, including these rather shady characters in Genesis. And Hebrews 11.20 simply says this, By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. And we might wonder how Isaac's actions in this chapter could be seen to be by faith. But the author of Hebrews seems to be referring not to Isaac blessing Jacob when he thought he was Esau in the earlier verses, but he's referring to this verse here. Isaac now realises you can't thwart God's plan and God's will. And so with great trembling and perhaps with that great humility, he's been brought low, he acknowledges God is going to bless Jacob. God has blessed Jacob. And there's nothing I can do about that. But, but, but can't I have some two weeks Esau? And the point is, no, he can't, because there's no point trying to uh, continue to subvert God's will. And we might feel some sympathy for him, but remember, this is the man who was willing to sell his birthright for a single meal. He is in some ways a victim, but he also bears responsibility. In Hebrews chapter 12, we heard in the second reading, Esau sought the blessing with tears, but there was no change of mind, which literally is the word for repentance. In other words, the author of Hebrews is commenting on this and saying, Esau is weeping here, there's lots of tears, but he's not repenting. It's the classic thing of somebody being sorry that they have been caught, if you like, but not actually intending to change. As in chapter 25, he confirms how little he deserves any of the blessing uh, that he longs for. He, he, he even says, isn't he rightly named Jacob? He has deceived me these two times. He took my birthright. Well, it wasn't quite as simple as that, was it? when he gave it away. And so what he ends with is a kind of anti-blessing, the opposite of what Jacob receives. Away from the earth's richness and the dew of heaven, in fear and servitude, no prosperity, no lordship, no blessing. And then in verses 41 to 45, we then see a kind of epilogue. There are no winners in this chapter. There are no moral heroes that we can point to and say, hey, look, yes, be like them. 
which is what we always want to do, isn't it? Actually, no. Esau and Jacob are now bitterly divided and enemies, which affects not just the rest of their lives, but the destinies of their descendants, as Esau's descendants become the hated Edomites, and Jacob's, of course, are Israel. Israel and Edom are fighting throughout the rest of the Old Testament. There's another plot then, and a counterplan in verses 41 to 45. Esau wants to kill Jacob. Rebekah sends him away. And as far as we know, that is the last time Rebekah sees her favourite son. And Jacob is now away from home for 20 years, mistreated and deceived by his, son, by his uncle Laban. And so this chapter is making it clear, sin and taking matters into your own hands does not pay. No one wins except God's promises and God's plans prevail. See, the miracle of this chapter is that despite Isaac's family doing their very best to be the next on the sofa on Jeremy Kyle or Jerry Springer or whatever Canaan's favourite daytime reality TV chat show might be called, God's plans are not foiled. He intended from the start for the line of promise to continue through Jacob. Isaac planned otherwise. Jacob and Rebekah wanted to manipulate and do it their way, but despite all that, God was working in them and through them to keep the promises he'd made and demonstrate his undeserved grace and kindness in the face of sin. And we need to know that. We need to know that in the face of our own sin and in the face of sin and brokenness in the world around us. What happens here in chapter 27 is a picture of what happened at the cross when Jesus died. So we heard in the reading from Acts, we heard Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. This is after Jesus has died and risen from the dead and ascended to heaven. Peter is preaching and he's saying, you people of Israel, with the help of wicked men, the Romans in other words, you put Jesus to death by nailing him to the cross. In other words, the intentions of those who crucified Jesus were entirely evil. They wanted to get rid of God on earth. They wanted to displace God from their lives. But in the same verse just before that, Peter says, Jesus was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. You see, this was precisely God's plan from the beginning. Is there anything more evil and wicked than, than crucifying God himself as man on earth? It's the, it's the single greatest evil act in the entire history of the universe. And yet, is there anything more wonderful than the Son of God willingly giving himself up as planned from eternity past so that he might suffer judgment in the place of sinful people and they might go free? Do you see it's the same acts, the same thing, viewed from two different perspectives. Both are true. This is how God works. We sin, we are sinners. Sin may have consequences in our lives, but God is a God of grace. Nothing can stop his plan. So on a personal level, we need to know that when we struggle with, maybe with mixed motives as we serve God, am I doing this for him or am I doing this for myself? Or when we make unwise decisions and we live with the consequences of them, a, a relationship choice, a foolish decision at work. God is a God of grace and he's going to carry on getting his plan done until Jesus returns. 
We need to know this in our families and in our relationships with one another. If we're parents, we need to know this in the way that we bring up our children with all the mistakes and selfishness and things that we wish we'd done differently. God is a God of relentless grace. And we can trust him. We need to know this when Christians fall out with one another. When they bring the church into disrepute. We need to know this in the wider church. The BBC this week screened a two-part expose of how the Church of England handled claims of abuse against a former bishop who eventually went to prison for his abuse of children and adults, but not before the victims had been ignored and sidelined and trampled over by the establishment in an attempt to hush everything up. It's not pleasant viewing. It's not pleasant to hear about these things. And, it, and hearing about it means we've got a lot to learn about safeguarding. But not even a corrupt church hierarchy can stop God from keeping his promise to build his church. Do you see? That is the message of this chapter. If you're looking into Christian things, Understand that Christianity is not for those who've got everything together and can prove that they're worthy of God's approval. It is those who know they're not worthy, like Isaac and Jacob and Rebecca and Esau. There's nobody worthy here in this chapter, and there's nobody worthy here this morning of God's approval and love. And yet, God is a God of relentless grace. And we can throw ourselves on that grace and receive it. Jacob is a picture of the way that we so often approach trying to seek God's blessing or indeed trying to find comfort and success and approval from any source. We think the only way to do it is to dress ourselves up, to try and be someone else, to wear the clothing of someone we think will be entitled to blessing. You know, knowing that that isn't us. So for some, it's literally a case of trying to find the right clothing and, and the right makeup, perhaps sometimes, to change our appearance, to cover the inadequacy that we feel. For some, it will be through spending our lives striving to prove ourselves, maybe to, to our parents, whether they're with us or not, to a mother or father who somehow always withheld their approval. Or if we don't do that, we do it the other way. We, we, we kind of miserably rebel. I don't care what my parents think we say, but their lack of blessing makes us miserable. And either way, we're trying to be someone else. For some, we even do this at church. We, you know, we dress up as a really good Christian. There are no sins here. There are no imperfections, no problems, no temptations. But it's a sham. It's a front. It's not the real me, and it's not the real you. We try to be someone else to manipulate blessing. Do you see? And the problem is, even when the scheme seems to work, it's a hollow blessing. Imagine how it felt to be Jacob, pulled near to his father. Come and kiss me so I know it's you, Esau, says Isaac to Jacob. He sees the look of joy on his father's face. He hears the words that he's longed to hear. But it's a false intimacy. He's blessed and yet in another way he's not blessed at all as he heads off into exile from his father and his brother never to see his beloved mother again. 
what all human beings need to realise is that God is a God of blessing. And that blessing doesn't need to be manipulated from him as if he were unwilling to give it. But it's freely ours in Christ if we will come to him. See, Jesus gave up the blessing of the firstborn, didn't he? He was found in appearance as a man, as Paul puts it in Philippians. He dressed up like us, you might say. So that we might dress up or be clothed like him. Clothed in his righteousness. So that we might go to our Father and be blessed. And despite our sin and our rebellion. This is my son who I love, says God of Jesus. And when we trust in Jesus, we're united with him so that when God looks at us, he says, you, yes, you, sinner, you are my child. And I love you. And in Christ, you are blessed. So we have the blessing. We have the approval. We have the acceptance that really matters if we're trusting in Jesus as he asks us to. We, we don't need to keep looking for it elsewhere. So why do we? In Christ, God invites us to draw near to him, to be embraced by him and be blessed by him now and into eternity. Let's reflect on that for a moment and I'll lead us in prayer. Father God, you are a God of grace, relentless grace, undeserved grace and kindness. We are sinners, we are just like Isaac and his family. We do not deserve your blessing. We seek to procure it from you in whatever ways we can. And yet you are a God who gives freely to those who come to you. Through Jesus. And so we come to you now. Perhaps for the first time, perhaps afresh, we come to you. Help us to turn our backs on all the ways that we try and manipulate blessing in other ways. Help us to rejoice in our status as your beloved children. And may we then live as those children in your world and introduce others to your love and blessing. Amen.